0: okay, I've got some good news and some bad news. Which one do you want first? the bad news okay, we'll get that out of the way here. The bad news is that Joe Greenitz, drummer of uh, my band Sherwood and lifelong very close friend of mine, one of my best friends, has contracted covid nineteen he is actually he works as a respiratory uh what is it therapist respiratory therapist he's in hospitals with COVID patients on a daily basis and uh, you know, working with their ventilators and everything. He's like as frontline as it gets with COVID. And he finally got it. He's been doing that since February and March, of course. Um, and so he's got it. Yeah, the other day, he had 105.6 temperature. Um, you know, His prognosis is good because he is a 39-year-old man in very good health. Um, but still, this is a very real virus. This is, for me by far the closest person to me that has uh, contracted it. I know a lot of listeners um, have close people who've had it. I believe some of our listeners have had it themselves. So I'm just here to say, remind you, it's ongoing. The surge right now is actually the worst it's been in America since it landed here. And so we have Thanksgiving coming up, and our public health experts are urging us to reconsider uh, who we get together with and consider Zoom Thanksgiving dinner instead of in person. And I am just echoing that and asking you to reconsider it. Uh, the news of Joe getting COVID hit me really hard uh, yesterday. I'm not, I'm not sure all the reasons why it hit me so hard, but it really did. And it's making it more real to me. I'm sick of it. I know you're sick of it. I'm totally sick of it. But it's still going on. And uh, we just got to be careful for the sake of the people that we love. Okay, so that was the bad news. Here's the good news. So you're deconstructing.com is live. It is up and out in the world. Uh, my good friend, Sari Martin Concepcion, and I put this thing together. Uh, we're not selling anything. It's just a free web resource. It's got all these different topics that people work through uh, as they begin to deconstruct their faith. Um, I don't necessarily always love that term deconstruction. Uh, but you know it's it's the word that people use. So we used it because we wanted people to know what we were talking about. Um, but basically, there are testimonies of what it is like to go through faith deconstruction. There's a page for therapy, a page for spiritual practices and prayer, a page for communities, both digital and uh, in person once once those are opened up again. And then the topics page, I'll just read through each of these has something like 15 to 25 resources. The Bible, politics and Christianity, hell, atonement and salvation, doubt, deconstruction and reconstruction, women and Christianity, science and faith, LGBTQ plus and Christianity, race and Christianity, rethinking God and our relationship to God, prayer, biblical violence, family, friends and parenting, sex and purity culture the historical Jesus, and soon to come uh, a post on spiritual and religious harm and abuse. So that's the kind of stuff you can find on there. Um, whether or not it's a resource that you need right now or could use right now, uh, it might be appropriate for someone that you know. There will be a couple episodes uh, coming that focus more on the site, or that they're not really about the site, but they celebrate the site and kind of We're working around some of the content on the site. Those will come soon. But in the meantime, the site is up. Soyouredeconstructing.com, Y-O-U-R-E. There are no apostrophes in URLs. There will, of course, be a link in the show notes as well. And I just wanted to get that out there. It's in the world. Sari will be on the show soon with me to, to talk some more about it. Okay, so now moving on to today's episode. Sorry for the bevy of... Uh, announcements this week. Today is the first in a series of episodes with, uh, these are conversations with podcast hosts whose shows focus on the Bible. Uh, This show will never be that kind of a show. We talk about the Bible and depending on the guest and topic, we, we focus, you know, from very little to some I would say, maybe a biblical violence episode, we we get really into the nitty gritty. Here and there, we'll get into the nitty gritty. But this show is more about psychology, theology, sort of larger themes and less about the text itself. But I realize there are a lot of very good shows about the text itself. And so I'm just going, rather than trying to make this show a Bible show, I'm just going to interview people who have Bible shows, and then you guys can figure out which ones of those you want to listen to. Uh, Today is the first of these. It is with Jared Bias. He is the co-host of the Bible for Normal People podcast. Um, His co-host is Pete Enns, who is an Old Testament scholar and author and speaker. Uh, Jared is himself also an author and speaker. Uh, And their show is really good. It's very good. They interview people who really know what they're talking about on all, all kinds of angles of reading, interpreting, understanding the world behind the Bible. Um, you know, they'll talk to archaeologists, they'll talk to Hebrew, uh, Jewish scholars, they will talk to just, it it runs the gamut, and uh, they get the best guests. Um, so I would really recommend that show. In the meantime, you can enjoy this conversation that I had with Jared, and I will stop talking now and we'll get into that, the meat of the uh, the episode here. Jared Bias... Thanks so much, man, for joining me. What was the Bible to you when you were growing up?
1: I mean, it was everything to me, actually. It was the guide for life. You know, I was, I was in that generation where we were taught the Bible is the B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth. So,
0: yes, yes.
1: That, I mean, it really was the thing. It gave us access to what the universe is really like and what God is really like and what our real purpose in life is. And everything that was meaningful in life had an answer and response in the Bible.
0: I want to ask actually a, a sort of like a psychological or what we might call a phenomenological question about that. What was the process like for you of coming down from that the Bible is everything kind of a view? Was that painful? Was it liberating? Was it both?
1: That's a good question. I think it was more liberating and I mean I think it is just if you say psychologically you know i'm an, I'm an eight on the enneagram so it's always that that challenge there's always something a little bit more beyond and there's something for me about the logical end of taking the Bible seriously is to come down from that mm-hmm. and so while the linear trajectory has been me continuing to take the Bible more seriously that's required it sort of went up in its trajectory, and there's definitely a pinnacle moment. For me, it was within the Reformed tradition, you know, reading Francis Turretin's three volumes of eclectic theology. That's just this outrageous outline of systematic theology from the Reformation period that just sort of like tries to systematize the entire Bible and all of God. And it's just this massive work. And that sort of is like the pinnacle of like, okay, well, we've we've rationalized as much as we can rationalize. Hmm but it does still doesn't seem to make sense of what the bible is it it's it's sort of it's sort of jumping the shark it's it's getting off the rails a little bit and then that led to maybe the splitting off of the seriousness of bible reading from a certain way of reading the bible
0: yeah so if i'm hearing you correctly this guy who i've never heard of by the way and he, this multi-volume here, we're going to put, we're going to systematize the whole Christian bit, just every piece of it. It's, it's multiple volumes. It's like highly analytical. So you, you read the whole thing. You read most of it. You read enough of it to get it. You read the whole yeah,
1: thing. Yeah. It was, it was part of my seminary education. Okay, for seminary. It. And where'd you yep. go to seminary, by the way? At Westminster. Okay. Is that yeah. where you
0: met Pete Enns? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. Uh So you get to that point and you're like, oh, this is the top of a certain kind of a mountain. This guy's doing this particular approach that I'm familiar with at the highest possible level, and this is what it results in. Was there a little bit of a, oh, that's all there is, like kind of a a disappointment?
1: Yeah, I think so. Well, what it really was, was the problem for me, at least in, in American faith is, and so I grew up, a little of my background, I grew up in a Southern Baptist tradition, but I also grew up with my grandmother being charismatic. Hmm. So there was definitely an emotional aspect to our Christian faith. And then there was this analytical figure God out kind of part. And the problem was, you know, when you get to that systematic pinnacle, you realize it's completely, it's mechanistic, it's robotic, it's completely devoid of humanity. And recognizing that, yeah, that's the natural, that's what has to happen if that's the route we're going to try to figure God out. And then, but what do you do with this other whole? You, you talk kind of phenomenologically this whole part of human experience. So then, it, then it, things just got more complicated. I think to recognize that we hit this pinnacle, but it's missing a large part of the human experience.
0: So the co-host of your show is Pete Enns. He got his start as an Old Testament scholar, but I would just say now he's more of like a, a general Bible scholar, right? And and sort of a popularizer of his books are mostly popular now, and therefore a general audience about the Bible. I, I love, and I think that probably most readers of his appreciate that he brings that Old Testament heft because that is more rare among Christian authors, right? We tend to focus on, not, I'm not a Christian author, but Christians tend to focus on the New Testament, right? And so it's, it's, it's a nice counterbalance. You met him around the time that you read that book in your story, what, what role did your, did, did you take a class with him? Like, how did that relationship go and how did that, inter, like, what's the timeline of that interacting with this change for you?
1: Yeah, it was huge. And it really wasn't Pete, to be honest. I was, I was intimidated by Pete. I didn't like Pete much whenever I first met him. Oh, nice. so He's a got a little bit of that
0: kind of gruff Pennsylvania thing going, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He
1: can, he you he know, can be a little, it was a little scary, but that I would say that whole department changed, changed everything for me hmm. because it was creative and that's what the Hebrew Bible did for me. Was You're saying it, it the old, the
0: Department of Old Testament at the seminary.
1: Yeah, yeah. So we, there was a divide. I mean, there's a whole background story here. There was a, a, a divide among the faculty, and it really split down the systematic theology group who were trying to systematize and theologize. And then there's the sort of text-based or the biblical studies yeah. department. And the biblical studies, I went in to try to get a PhD in apologetics. I mean, I was always philosophically minded. My undergrad was in philosophy. I was there to, again, I'm an eight on the Enneagram. What better job than to argue with people about Christianity? So that was kind of my trajectory. And then to realize the emptiness of that. And it was missing this human experience. It was missing the creativity. It was missing the nuance and the wisdom and the gray areas of life. And the biblical studies department, they embodied that. I mean, it was you slipped in and out of poetry and prose and yeah. we don't know what this word means. There's thousands of words in the old Testament. But we don't actually know what they mean. So what do we do with that? And, and, oh, there's, here's one hypothesis. Let's put it together. What kind of creative reading comes out if we put that word in there? And that was the approach and it just felt so much more life giving and it opened up opportunity. It seemed like the systematization of the Bible was a closing down process where we take out mystery, we take out questions And that is great if your goal is certainty, and it's great if your goal is to unfound whatever fear you have of the unknown, but there's a risk. There's a loss. It's great in the short term. Yeah. 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 There's a loss, and and I've started to feel that, and that's when I kind of went on this more liberating journey.
0: So that is really interesting. It's got me thinking something fresh here that I don't think I've thought before. So that's good because that's not so easy to do, Jared. That's a compliment. Not because I'm smart, but because my brain never stops. So it's bound to have gone somewhere once before, right? <laughs>
1: Sometimes it's quantity over quality. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's
0: very often quantity over quality. I just was telling my wife this morning, she's like, why, why weren't you able to sleep longer? And I was like, if I get seven hours, which is not enough for me, I woke up this morning and I was like, oh, here's what the TED Talk would be. And then I start thinking about, you know, I just go. It's just always f-ing going. Anyway... The thought, though, that comes to me now is that it's so interesting, I want to say not only for you, but I think there's a larger point here for where we're at in American Christianity, that whereas a lot of us grew up having the Bible used to sort of clobber down interesting stuff or, you know, creative approaches or alternate interpretations or whatever kind of creativity was coming out of us, it's like, no, no, no. A Bible verse would quote, and it would shut down discussion, right? But what I think we're finding now is that, for instance, the popular form of evangelicalism that is so tied up in politics is actually very little biblical basis to it. It is actually not really text-based. It's it's kind of these arguments. They're actually more like theological, political arguments that are being offered about when we need to protect what, and, you know, with barely a reference to scripture now and again. So I'm just kind of, I'm I'm excited at this idea of like, oh, has this paradigm flipped? And is the Bible the thing now that actually, like, gets us out of our stupor and, and excites creativity? That is really interesting.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great point. And that is, I, I think you've articulated something, maybe I haven't articulated before, but it's there. That's what it's been for me. Is is the Bible as this locus place, this point? Uh, it, you know, in some ways, it's seeing the Bible as something that can disrupt, rather than seals, rather than just christens. And so, how do we see the Bible as a disrupting force in our life? And how do we get excited about that, rather than seeing disruption as something that we can't? tolerate because it messes with the status quo. And whenever I have power, I don't want the status quo to change. But how do we see it as I'm excited to be disrupted because it means there's new things, new life that's going to come out. And that's scary because maybe that new life is going to disadvantage me. But I think new life is, is valuable. And, and I get a lot of this again from, uh, you know, Brueggemann is the master at this, Walter Brueggemann, where he just has such a way of allowing these Old Testament texts to disrupt us.
0: Give us an example of uh, one of those types of things that Brueggemann would, would go well, to for often. instance,
1: uh, you know, he – this is going to show my nerdiness, but one of my favorite books of his is this uh, book. It's called Exile and Homecoming. It's a commentary on the book of Jeremiah. So it's basically just a commentary. He just goes through verse by verse. But some of the insights that he has in there, you know, where he talks about if you read carefully, and that's the beauty of this is all these creative readings come from a close, close reading of the text where we just, you know, I grew up just cursory. okay. Um, but if you read closely, you see these things like he talks about this mantra that seemed to be present in ancient Israel where they had this belief that they were safe from enemy harm because they had the temple. They had where God lived hmm. in their midst. And then they started to box God in and to use God as a token, almost as this magical totem that is the temple. And it's like, for instance,
0: holding up God in a photo op in front of a church after using the National Guard to disperse protesters, for instance.
1: Yeah, I'll let you make those creative uh, creative, uh, applications. And and he uses this mantra of where it sounds like there's a few places, I think in chapter seven, and maybe again in chapter 26, because if you read Jeremiah, there actually repeats, you get the same narrative from Jeremiah's perspective, and then you get a narrative version of it. But he uses this phrase, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And Brueggemann makes this point that It sounds like they're using that as like this, again, if we just pull these verses out and we just put these phrases in and we're protected, and Jeremiah is disrupting that whole narrative and says, no, without justice, without caring for the weak and underprivileged among you, God is not on your side. You Hmm. can say your token phrases all you want. You can have these places erected in God's honor, but that's not what protects you. God's on the move, and so that is one of those disrupting things that I think the Old Testament is good at if we can find it.
0: That's awesome. But if we're going to use the Bible in this kind of disruptive way, if, it's, if we're going to use it creatively, if it's going to liberate, there is a little bit of destruction that those of us—or deconstruction, rather—that those of us raised in in these kind of environments have to do first, right? We We do need to get past— For instance, I think the inerrancy conversation, which, you know, Pete has argued in a particular one of those four views or five views books for a way of understanding that. But really, the way that inerrancy is understood as like, there are no errors here of history, of science, of whatever, like that is akin to the systematics department at Westminster, right? That's doing – that is doing the same work of like removing all the mystery – what we most need is certainty, and of course, this is why Pete talks and writes so much about certainty, and you guys do that a bunch on the show, and, and I'm interviewing him about that soon. So what is your kind of approach to getting past or or working through that question of inerrancy, infallibility, inspiration, whatever term you want to use? Like, what's kind of your standard answer or approach to that complex of
1: questions? Well, I mean, the Bible itself— Again, it's to t- take the Bible seriously. If you take the Bible seriously and you read it for what it is, it doesn't take long before those arguments just don't hold up. You know, what What does it mean to have an inerrant Bible when we start our entire Bible with two different creation stories that actually have conflicting details? So I don't know what inerrancy means at that point. But I think the argument that Pete makes and I and I would make is— we, for a long time, it's like scholars pointed that out and say, "Aha! See, the Bible is just fill in the blank." But it seems that the Bible itself doesn't isn't bothered by those things. It's not like mm. they were trying to create an inerrant Bible and messed up. It's clear that that's not what the Bible's trying to do. I mean, we start with two creation stories. We end up the very next section we go to two tellings of the law that don't agree. Then we go to two tellings of the history of Israel that don't agree. And then we think, well, when we get to Jesus, though, we're going to nail it, you know. But we move from two to four, right? right. So like, well, something, something's amiss here if we're trying to make this thing inerrant. And yet at every turn, there's different perspectives of the same events.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, I send out a little list of possible topics to my Bible guests. Uh, and this is one of the ones that that you were interested in talking about. And I'm always interested as well. So where where should we start if we're trying to like I I I'd like this to be a little bit of a snapshot of the way that you and Pete approach these things uh, on your show. This is an this is like a blatant advertisement for Bible for Normal People podcast uh, as well as each of your books. So w- how would you approach this on your show? Let's say you're going to do an episode on Genesis 1 and 2. I'm sure you have done episodes.
1: Yeah, I mean the 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 whole premise for the Bible for Normal People is to answer these questions, what is the Bible and what do we do with it? And I think those are, those go hand in hand and those are important. And so from the very beginning, we have to ask the question, what is the Bible in Genesis one and in Genesis two? And the problem is it gets very complicated very quickly. So we start, we have to ask the question, what does the text say? And I think that's really important because we come to so many conclusions without first understanding what the text says. So when we get to this place, you know, I've done many presentations at churches where I walk through this. And even looking at how the Bible is translated this word firmament, which in in Hebrew is the rakia. And I would put up 10 different translations of that verse. And that word firmament is translated eight different ways. Why is that? And then we talk about what are we expecting of the Bible? Because what it sounds like people are doing when they translate that word is they are bringing into it a modern understanding of cosmology and how the universe works. And they're trying to put these Hebrew words and this Hebrew framework into our modern understanding. But what we say in in the book that we wrote, Genesis for Normal People, is we have to have ancient eyes. Like, otherwise, we're disrespecting the world of ancient Israelites. We're disrespecting the text so we have to actually be humble enough to enter into their space and their – what did they mean by the raqia? And when we open that up, that the problem is that actually transgresses our view of science and it transgresses our view of how creation because it makes coherent sense within the world of Genesis, but it doesn't make physics sense right now. Right. And so that's kind of uh, where we start is like let's like, just pay attention. When we hear words like tahome or raqia. let's find out what those mean and what's the – construct what's the world that that's presenting to us
0: yeah it's like verbal archaeology kind
1: of right that's a good way of saying it yeah so you yeah. you're
0: looking for whatever resources you have to understand how they would have made sense of these words in their time is the torah the first 5 books of the bible you know the the main scriptural sort of basis of Judaism and focus of Judaism is the torah more difficult than other parts of the bible to more complicated to understand because it's the oldest? Because isn't it? Aren't these the oldest texts in the Judeo-Christian tradition? I guess maybe Job might be older, some people think, or whatever.
1: Yeah, once you get into ages, the question is difficult because that's a, we bring a lot of baggage to that question, right? So there are some very old parts, like Exodus 15 or Judges 5 would often be considered some of the oldest traditions that get memorialized in our current text. But those would be pieces of books that then have other pieces that have been added later. You know, there's still, not to oversimplify, but again, there's the idea of source criticism that they, we have to kind of understand that there were different traditions going on at the time and these get put together in, in very intentional ways. But you know, if scholars are trained in how to kind of pull these pieces out. And we find that from the very beginning in Genesis 1 and 2, right? There's a challenge there where we have one creation story in Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 4a. Then when you get to the second half of verse 4 in chapter 2, it sounds like we're starting over because it's a different creation story. And they would say that's two different sources. And rather than try to decide between the traditions, one which uses the word Elohim for God has this more uh, God walks in the midst of the garden, a very personable, narratival way. And then Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 4 has this cosmic God who doesn't seem to be intimately involved in creation. You know, what do we do with that? Well, the ancients just said, well, these both maybe speak truths about God. They put them together. Um, what's, the name for the,
0: what's the name for the cosmic God? Is that Yahweh?
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That would be the divine name. Yeah.
0: So Genesis 1 largely is Elohim. Genesis 2 is Yahweh. What do we know from the rest of the Torah about those two traditions? So just, just briefly compare and contrast all the Elohim passages versus all the Yahweh passages. What did those original writers or speakers, maybe is a better thing to say, who developed these two traditions that are overlapping but not in complete agreement, how did they differentially see God?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great good question. I mean, not to spoil even an episode that we have coming up with a Jewish scholar, but even the idea of idolatry and what counts as idols, you know, there's a, there's a tradition we'd call the Deuteronomistic or Deuter, you know, Deuteronomy tradition, the D, that was very anti, it's related to kind of the priestly class of, of writers and thinkers where, you know, they would say there's only one God. It can only be in one place at one time and any of these other sites are going to be idols and we can't have that because that's what the other countries around us do and the peoples mm-hmm. around us do and that's idolatry and we, we're very familiar with that. But what we miss is some of the more eloistic ways of writing. We find traditions in the text where they don't seem to condemn the multiple shrines that Are in our text. Again, if we read the Bible clearly and carefully, and I can't recall any of those right now, but we find in the text this sense that it's okay to have many different places where God can be worshipped. And in fact, we see this in, again, the Torah in Genesis where Jacob, you know, Jacob's ladder, Jacob before he wrestles with the divine and it's this place, he sets up a rock and There's a sense in which what he's setting up is a shrine to God. This is where God lives. This is God's presence. And the Deuteronomist would call that idolatry. Hmm. And so, yeah, these traditions don't always agree. Yeah. Is it
0: speculative to say that Jesus might be commenting on this tension? Uh, Obviously... Jesus of Nazareth was not familiar with what is called the documentary hypothesis, right? Which is right. these, I don't remember if it was four or five sources from which the Torah is most likely compiled. And it, this, this hypothesis has had decades and decades of broad support. Jesus of Nazareth is not aware of that. He is just a member of the Jewish faith at, at First Temple Judaism, or first century Second Temple Judaism. But might he have intuited as a very intuitive person the tension between these different views of god within his own tradition when he focuses so much on samaritans right so by the time that jesus is around samaritans are sort of the the inferior ethnic group of you know that that area and Ju- and judaism in general i'm i'm being very inarticulate here uh but they're like second class citizens basically and not really thought to be part of the people of god by you know, pure Jews or whatever. And I don't know how much, how unfair I'm being. I'm not sure to those first century Jews, but, but Jesus kind of pushes on the Samaritan thing in a few different places in some of the stories and some of the parables he tells. Am I onto something or is that wild conjecture?
1: No, no, I think, but I think, you know, there's other contexts that would play into that. Like we have to remember where Jesus is now in the story of Israel, that there has been a an upheaval of the Jewish people who've now been ruled by foreigners since the, uh, since the 8th century or the 6th century. And so we're talking 500 years of foreign rule, mm. of diaspora, of exile. And there's a mixing now of so many peoples and ideologies. And it, we'll see, all that to say Jesus isn't new in the Jewish tradition of starting to question and wonder, how do outsiders fit? in this conversation about the people of God. So it's not, there's a tradition that, you know, I would have grown up with, which is sort of like Jesus was against the Jews in a lot of what he, like the Jewish tradition was very well established and Jesus comes in and sort of has this uh, stuff that it breaks out of that and it's all new. But what scholars recognize is Jesus was thoroughly Jewish as was Paul. And these conversations right. had been happening. And so I don't think, I do think it's, good that we have that recorded. I think it's, uh, you know, I think it is maybe new articulations of it, but it's not a new idea of how we wrestle with the people of God or not. And, you know, the book of Jonah, which is much older than Jesus, wrestles with this same idea in I those favorite book of the well. Bible. Yep. Yeah.
0: Almost convinced my wife to name our son Jonah. That was my first choice, but lost out. Maybe, maybe I'm, I'll get a second chance at that. So speaking of outsiders, that's a perfect bridge to this this second of the two biblical issues that we're going to briefly discuss here, and that is the Canaanite Conquest or Genocide. This is the opening of Pete's book, The Bible Tells Me So. This is sort of the first thing he goes into. That was actually the second book of his that I read, but I really appreciated that he started there because for me in my own story, uh, coming out of college, into my 20s, this was where I, especially as a philosophy major in undergrad... Where the rubber hit the road for me was like, wait, what kind of God is this? Like, whatever I think about God or the Bible says about God, why would God ever tell God's people to kill every man, woman, and child in a particular geographical area for whatever reason? And that really was to use the the Derrida, you know, thread that unravels the sweater metaphor. That was the thread for me. And so I was happy that you chose this as your second of the multiple choice. How do you approach, just generally speaking, start us off on that narrative? Maybe first, what do we need to know? People who aren't really familiar with that, what do we need to know? What are the basics of that story?
1: Essentially, what it is, is we have an enslaved people group, the Hebrews, who are taken out of the land of Egypt and promised a land. The problem is there's already people there. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's this narrative of conquest where we have to go wipe them out. But it's okay because we have these points where it says they were evil. They were desperately wicked. There was not like there's kind of these justifications kind of throughout, which it's, kind of tries to make sense of it.
0: And if you're and if you're an American listening to this, and you you notice some similarities to uh, I don't know, let's say the Christian curriculum from uh, Becca that you were taught at your Christian junior high and high school, like I was. And let's say you went on eBay and picked a couple of these books up more recently, and and reread some of the sections on Native Americans and noticed where they said how few of these groups really loved God and were peaceful. Uh, you might you might be forgiven for noticing some some historical rhyming here.
1: Yeah, I, you know this is this is the hot button issue because there's so many other ways to get around other violence and things in the Bible, but it's very clear that this is a God-directed, God directed, yes. God ordained activity. That's
0: so a lot of times people if you if you say, oh, I've got some doubts about this I thing, they'll say, well everybody dies. So why does it matter if they die earlier or later? What's the you know, if God God gives people their days, he lets them live longer or shorter. So what's really the difference? And that's a that's a good thought. The difference though is that God tells the Israelite soldiers go murder everyone, which is different than, for instance, God brought a great storm that, you know, didn't flood everything, but like, or, you know, there were earthquakes or something like that. Well, they died in an earthquake. They would have died some other way, maybe cancer. Okay, it's not great. We might have an issue with God shortening lives for a seemingly arbitrary reason on there, you know, Maybe. But that's not what we have. We have like murder, all of them, kill pregnant women, because if those kids are allowed to be born, they will be these people also. And it smacks of a kind of ethnocentric convenience, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, I think that's the the rub. That's the problem is how do you get away from that and keep to kind of an inerrant Bible that is, you know, and, and not to get a little sidetracked, but, no, do you know, it. the question of prescription and description come in here too. Yeah, is there The Bible does not designate when it's describing things and saying, don't imitate this. I'm just describing it for you. And when it's prescribing behavior. And so we're left to just kind of the wild, wild west of interpretation for what do we say applies to us and what do we not? And what is the criteria that we're using? And so I think the honest answer is, We always filter our Bible through our current ethic and our ethical stance, and I think it's disingenuous to say otherwise. Um, Yeah,
0: yeah. I I say this all the time, so people are probably sick of it, but as a liberal, when I hear the, oh, you guys are just caving to culture argument from conservative Christians, I just think there are many cultures to cave to, and uh, Fox News is one of them. You know, that's not a— That's not a sufficient argument in and of itself to say you're caving to culture. Which culture am I caving to?
1: Right, right. We all, we can't escape that responsibility. So we have to say, did God command, is it good or bad? Is it right or wrong? Did it come from God or did it not come from God? And those have some serious consequences to what we think of the Bible and what we think of God and what we think of ourselves and our responsibilities.
0: Can I ask you a couple rapid fire personal opinion questions about the Canaanite conquest? Yes. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. In terms of historical fact, what do you think actually happened or can we know?
1: We don't know. This goes back to a pretty old debate in the 20th century. There's a few scholars um, who have these different theories. There's a few important theories of, you know, did it a people group that migrated up or does it come from within? And they self-identify as a small group of kind of Canaanites, but now we have our own uh, you know, identity and the so emergence we're going to be the emergence
0: yeah. among Canaanites theory, I think it's right. something like that right yep, yep.
1: Um, so and
0: these we, are theories about how the Israelites came to be more broadly, right that's right, which of that's course right. then really affects what you think about this particular story.
1: and I would just say archaeologically, there isn't much evidence for the conquest as it's written in our Bibles, so w- we have to take that into account um, because whatever it is, it's likely not a historical account. Of what actually happened? Uh, what, are,
0: what are some of the basic pieces of evidence or lack of evidence that lead to that conclusion that there's not a lot of support for the historical? Well, account?
1: the numbers don't add up. You know, archaeologically, we don't find the kinds of populations in the area that it says. You know, we don't find. There's ways in these ancient settings of like Jericho and and other places of kind of figuring out, okay, th- there's definitely a destruction level here. There's a destruction layer, and there's a building layer where we see that they're building up a city or it's being destroyed. And this just doesn't match up with the kind of scale that we see in the, in the biblical text. So I think those, from an archaeological standpoint, cast a lot of doubt on what the, the story— and it's not like one or two things. It's that it really doesn't match at any of the sites that we can map onto the Bible at this point.
0: Okay, so that's history. How about what this passage says about God? So, you know, we've talked about there are different traditions within for instance the Torah, there are different writers and authors for this passage as well, uh or sorry, I mean among the rest of the Old Testament, right? And I'm I'm not an expert on that. What do you think the original authors or author of this Canaanite conquest thing what do you think that they were trying to say about God, and do you think that they were mistaken about that, or how do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to tell, you know, who knows what they were thinking, but I think it does fit well within this Deuteronomic understanding of God. So, you have to think there's a lot of pure, impure, clean, unclean, binary thinking, and this fits right in with that theology, that God is one who wants purity, who wants cleanliness, um, ritualistically and otherwise morally ethically it 's a cleansing, and that fits with there are parts of our Bible where God is portrayed in that way. there is a theological yeah. tradition and strand where that 's what God is presented as, so again, we run into this difficult question of what is the Bible and what do we do with it if that is what it is and and i 'm of the opinion that we respect the text when we let it stand on its own two feet. It is what it is, it says what it says i don 't i don 't particularly this is just personal preference I don't like us uh, saying well no what the Bible really says is and then mm. we make it palatable to our culture today it's like no we're gonna let Paul be Paul we're gonna let the Deuteronomist be the Deuteronomist and then we're just gonna say and you know what I think you were wrong and that's part of Christian tradition and that's that's a very Jewish if I could say that way of finding that we have to struggle with these texts and it's our spiritual growth and our spiritual communities develop through the struggle and the disagreement, not through the pre packaging and marketing of a streamlined message
0: this is now i 'm getting out there, and so if we don 't have much to say about this, that 's fine, but I just want to try this here. It seems to me that this kind of purity discussed module within human psychology is just undeniable, as i 've spoken about on multiple episodes. Uh, with other people who know more about it than I do, it keeps us safe evolutionarily, right? Before we had germ theory, it kept us from getting sick. It is so prevalent. You see it between ethnic divisions. You see it with whatever. On the one hand, we might want a religious tradition that completely pushes against that, that says, that's all bullshit. There is no clean and unclean. The entire tradition is God showing Peter you know, the the curtain that comes down or whatever. Do not call unclean what I've called clean. On the other hand, though, we might say that a religion like that would never stick. That actually you could do it, but like it won't be popular and you won't be talking about it for three 3,000 years later. And it won't be influencing people's moral and ethical decisions 3,000 years later because... Just it's not powerful enough. People won't follow it. It do, it won't ring true to them. And so I don't know. There There is an argument maybe that it's good to have this stuff in here in tension with other stuff because like that's what we are. And so we're going to have to deal with that in some way. And you, of course, see this in all over the New Testament. Jesus is constantly butting up against purity. Peter's butting up against purity. Paul's stuff about including the Gentiles—he's always butting up against purity. I don't know. What do you think about that?
1: No, I think it's great. I think the only thing I would say is that also, though, is a privileged position to say that that we would even understand what that final product would be, even if we had it. Mm. I think there's a teleological assumption there. That what do you mean what, by what teleological? Does, that there's an end goal that that we actually have an ethical purpose, and some there's a little bit of what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery, right? Okay. Well, that, yeah. Like well, in 2020 we fully understand what's right and wrong and those silly people back 2000 years ago, oh my goodness. So what do you want to canonna? You want to make canonical 2020 ethics? Well, what happens when 2021 comes around, you know, 2100 comes around and they look back at our ethical practice and say, "Oh, gee." And then again, the question then is a little bit theoretical. Do we ever get to a point where we say, "Oh, this is it. We have it. We've all figured out." How to be ethical human beings. We have perfection. For me, to mention Derrida, that feels like one of those capital letter terms like justice and peace, which is something we'll always be striving for and never arrive at. Um, And so we have to have that humility not to concretize or canonize our own ethical framework. And that's, that's frustrating, but that's also the human condition.
0: 100%. So you've talked about these really foundational questions. What is the Bible and what do we do with it? any light shed on those two questions from this particular narrative of the Canaanite conquest?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it challenges that. It forces us back into a position of responsibility as readers and actors. And I think that's a big difference for me and how I grew up with the Bible is I'm a passive character here who just Mm -hmm. needs to listen. It's a passive thing. And if I just do what it says, then I'm on the right path. And that's safe and that's secure. That's Not developmental. That's not in line with what it means to be human, unfortunately. It's what is in line with what we wish was helpful as humans. And so, because it forces the question, okay, well, if I can't trust that when God says to kill everyone, that that was the right thing to do. And I think conservatives do a good job of understanding the implications, right? They often will say, okay, well, if one thing goes, then the whole thing kind of gets put into question. It's like, yeah, because if the question is perfection or not perfection. Yeah. Perfection and certainty, right. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it just makes us responsible agents as Bible readers now to, again, and I actually, I think I harp on this in in my book, Love Matters More, but we have to recognize we have work to do as human beings to read the Bible with our own ethical framework. That the Bible itself and our understanding is just as important as our framework. When I was in seminary, I didn't learn how to work on my framework. I didn't learn how to work on emotional intelligence or self-awareness or what love actually is or toxicity or systems or impression or injustice I didn't and, and how my own cultural baggage gets read into the Bible. I didn't learn about any of that. And I think that's what it does for me when I read The Genocide, I read these things, is it says, okay, this is a text that needs interpreting. It has to be interpreted. What's the tool, what are the tools I'm using and why am I not working on the tools?
0: Love that. Just in general with your show, what are the questions you guys get most often from listeners that you try to address?
1: Uh, That's a good question. I think we get – it depends. We have different kind of listeners where they are on their journey. I think first we get the, okay, but is the Bible inerrant or sort of the questions of, but how can I still make this safe – and then once they move beyond that, it comes to usually, okay, but can we trust it for what it says about Jesus and the resurrection? And then it comes to usually, why is the Bible special at all? Do I need to read it? Yeah. Is that helpful to, is Christianity unique? So I think that's a pretty common. That's a nice little, yeah,
0: that's like a Darwinian, uh, ape <laughs> a- <laughs> ascent of man right there, poster ready to go. Those four spots. Yeah. Yeah, it's where the rubber often meets the road at various points for people. Just to wrap up here, uh, we talked about Genesis 1 and 2, and we talked about Canaanite conquest uh, and early Israel. I would love for you to give my listeners and myself one or two books on each of those topics that you have found the most helpful if people want to kind of dig in on those issues.
1: Yeah, I mean, we've already probably mentioned them, and it probably sounds self-promoting, but Genesis for Normal People is a good place to start, if that's new for you, on Genesis 1 and 2, because it sort of tries to get at those ancient I way of doing it, but not in a in a scholarly way. And then the Canaanite genocide, you know, the, the Bible tells me so, and just Pete's work in general. He's done a lot on the Canaanite genocide. We also have a lot of blog. Pete has a lot of blog posts up on that, too, so you can find those just to kind of get his opinions on that.
0: Jared, thank you so much for your time, man. Obviously, there will be a link to your podcast in the notes, as well as those two books. And best of luck keeping the fight going, man. Thanks. I appreciate it. A little shorter conversation today, so I didn't do an ad in the middle. Uh, But there is a Patreon campaign. You can always support this show. It's $5 a month. Unless finances are tight, in which case you can email me about a sliding scale at you have at gmail.com. Uh, but members of the Patreon community have access to the Facebook group, which is patron only. And they also get at least two exclusive episodes per month. Uh, most recently, that was a very engaging chat with the hosts of the Dirty Rotten Church Kids podcast and the creators of many funny Christian memes on their Instagram account. Um, As I said earlier, there is also a link to com in the show notes, as well as those links I mentioned with Jared. Thanks to Josh Gilbert for editing my conversation with Jared. He is available for more editing work. His email is also in the show notes. And we will see you guys next week for another episode. Thank you very much.